Gospel, chapter 14. From verse 54. And I am going to read it this evening in um, Monsignor Knox's version. <laughs> Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, from verse 54. Yet Peter followed at a long distance, right into the high priest's palace, and there sat down with the servants by the fire to warm himself. The high priest and all the council tried to find an accusation against Jesus, such as would compass his death, but they could find none. Many accused him falsely, but their accusations did not agree. There were some who stood up and falsely accused him thus. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made by men's hands, and in three days... I will build another with no hand of man to help me. But even so, their accusations did not agree. Then the high priest stood up and asked Jesus, Hast thou no answer to the accusations these men bring against thee? He was still silent, still did not answer. And the high priest questioned him again, Art thou the Christ? the Son of the Blessed God. Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God's power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At this, the high priest tore his garments and said, What further need have we of witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy of yourselves. What is your finding? And they all pronounced against him a sentence of death. Then some of them fell to <laughs> spitting upon him and covering his face while they buffeted him and bade him prophesy. The servants too caught him blows on the cheek. Meanwhile, Peter was in the court without and one of the maidservants of the high priest came by. She saw Peter warming himself and said, Looking closely at him, thou too wast with Jesus the Nazarene. Whereupon he denied it. I know nothing of it. I do not understand what thou meanest. Then he went out into the porch, and the cock crew. Again the maid, the maid looked at him and said to the bystanders, This is one of them. And again he denied it. Then a little while afterwards the bystanders said to Peter, it is certain that thou art one of them. Why, thou art a Galilean. And he fell to calling down curses on himself and swearing, I do not know the man you speak of. Then came the second cockcrow, and Peter remembered the word Jesus had said to him, Before the second cockcrow, thou wilt den thrice deny me, and all at once, he burst out weeping. Now, if you will open your Bibles and keep them open this evening at uh, Mark 14 from verse 53, we will look at the um, trial before the Sanhedrin. Um, I would very much like to have got 
this evening to Peter's um, denial because I feel that the Lord's given a little more uh, understanding of it but uh, we will not get there this evening so we shall have to leave it uh, to another week now we're dealing quite um, in, in some ways quite exhaustively with these things because um, really these are the fundamentals of the gospel uh, this matter of the trial of the Lord Jesus is not just some little small incident it is one of the great essential fundamentals, as it were, upon which the gospel is based. So let's look together now at these verses. Having arrested Christ, the temple guard lost no time, but took him back over the Kedron from the Garden of Gethsemane and straight up to the residence of the high priestly family, probably, almost certainly, situated somewhere in the upper city of Jerusalem. That's, we have this in verse uh, 53. John informs us that they went first to Annas, uh, the former high priest and the father-in-law of the present high priest, Caiaphas. Then after they had taken him to Annas, he was taken to Caiaphas. Mark only tells us that they went to the high priest. If Annas, uh, the former high priest, and Caiaphas, the present ruling high priest, had separate residences, they were probably within a minute's walk of each other. All this enormous discussion about how far apart these two residences are really is a little silly. Um, because even now, in the, within the old walled part of Jerusalem, you can get across within a few minutes, really, uh, from wall to wall. They certainly were within a minute's walk, probably, of each other. In all probability, however, this powerful Sadducean family um, uh, inhabited a complex of buildings under the patriarchal eye of Annas himself. Once Christ had been arrested, the Sanhedrin was summoned together. The great Sanhedrin was the supreme governing body in Jewry. It was also the highest and most authoritative Jewish court, not only in the homeland, but throughout the dispersion. It exercised civil and criminal jurisdiction according to Jewish law. Now you must just understand this, that this court only exercised authority over Jewish people. Um, with one exception, which I will come to in a moment. Um, it had no authority at all in military matters or in international politics. In these matters it could only make representations to the Roman procurator. In all other fields, it had supreme authority. It had authority to settle all matters to do with the um, law of God, both to do with its interpretation and to do with its practice. It had authority to settle all disputes, whatever they were. It had powers of arrest, powers of judgment, trial, powers of punishment, and 
powers of imprisonment. It could even pass the death sentence, but could not carry out the death sentence without the ratification of the Roman procurator. If you see in John 1831, uh, there, in fact, the Jews said to Pilate, we're not able to do it. When he said, take him away and judge him according to your own laws. They said, yes, but we can't do that. Um, this meant, in capital cases, now, I hope everyone understands what we mean by capital cases and non-capital cases. Capital cases, those involving the death penalty, execution, and non-capital cases are all legal cases that do not involve the death sentence. They may be involve imprisonment or fines or something else, but not the death sentence. Now, this meant that in capital cases, uh, a further trial before the Roman procurator was necessary. Even a Gentile, even a Roman or a Greek, could be tried by the Sanhedrin and sentenced to death if he sought to pass the barrier between the court of the Gentiles and the holy place in the temple. The execution, sentence of death, was normally by stoning. Now the great Sanhedrin consisted of 71 members including the president who was the ruling high priest. They, they, there had to be at least a quorum of 23 members before a session was legal. They sat in a semicircle with two clerks of court, one on this side, one on that side, and the accused more or less off, just off center. Um, these clerks wrote down all the proceedings, took down everything longhand uh, that took place in the trials or other business. Um, they also recorded the votes cast, one of them for acquittal, the other for conviction. Now this is interesting really because if you cut out one, two, three, four, the fourth row at the back there and everyone else beyond that, then we have roughly uh, uh, the same arrangement this evening as the court of the great Sanhedrin. The semicircle, on one side the clerk, other side the clerk, the accused was here. And roughly 70 people when it was full session, but there had to be 23 uh, members for it to be uh, um, operative, before it could be uh, legal. Now, another very interesting thing is this. Forgive all these technical points, but they are all uh, really have much to do with this trial. Everything in Jewish law was um, loaded in favor of the accused. This made, made Jewish law absolutely unique in the ancient world. Everything was loaded in favor of the accused. For instance, if one spoke in the defense of the accused, one could not then afterwards change one's mind and speak against him for the prosecution. But if one spoke for the prosecution, one could change one's mind and speak in defense of the accused. The accused 
did not have to answer and did not have to speak at all in his trial. Uh, nor was the, uh, were the judges permitted to interrogate the accused. Now this is a very important point. They were not permitted by Jewish law to interrogate the accused. For acquittal, a simple majority of even one was all that was needed. But for conviction, there had to be a majority of at least two-thirds. Acquittal in capital cases could be announced immediately, but conviction only on the day following the trial. When members voted, it was by standing up and then signifying yes or no. And they began with the youngest, could never make your age in the Sanhedrin a secret, and then went right the way up till you got to the oldest. Now the reason for this simple, typically Jewish procedure, um, was uh, that um, uh, the older members, the old senior venerable members of the Sanhedrin, could not then influence the younger ones by the way they cast their vote. Witnesses had always to be carefully warned publicly and cautioned concerning giving truthful evidence. Charges had to be established on the testimony of two witnesses at least. And those two had to corroborate one another completely or their, their testimony was dismissed in its entirety. Now, in the notes, you will find some scriptures for this in the Old Testament that give the basis for this. Because, in fact, in Jewish law, the witnesses were all important. The accused never said a word. The whole case was conducted on the evidence of witnesses. And the witnesses, not as in British law, the, witness, the evidence of one witness is... Uh, um, Legal, but in Jewish law, the witness of one, the the testimony of one witness was not valid unless it could be established in the mouth of another, and the two had to corroborate each other completely. The great Sanhedrin could not sit on feast days, on Sabbath nor on the eve of festivals, nor on the eve of Sabbath. Now, for those who don't understand anything about Jewish things, the eve of Sabbath is Thursday, the whole day. It doesn't just mean just a few hours before. It means the whole day before. It's the technical term for Thursday. And in the same way, uh, yes, not, not Thursday, Friday, uh, but it begins on Thursday, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, I hope I'm not com completely confusing you. Uh, begins with sunset. Jewish day begins with sunset. So from Thursday to Friday, sunset was uh, uh, eve of Sabbath. And the same with the festival. It was the whole preceding 24 hours before the festival day actually commenced at sunset. So upon these days, feast days, Sabbath, the eve of Sabbath, and the eve of festivals, the great Sanhedrin was not permitted to meet. They could not hold trial proceedings. Nor could any trial proceedings begin during the night hours. 
not even in the afternoon. Whilst verdicts could be reached at night in non-capital cases, when the case had been heard through the day, it was expressly forbidden in capital cases. Now, how legal then were the trial proceedings of our Lord Jesus? There has been tremendous debate over the legality of Christ's trial. And uh, we cannot with certainty at present say how illegal it was. On our present knowledge, it appears that a number of, fe of, of features in the trial proceedings against Christ were totally illegal. For instance, the proceedings began in the night. The trial proceedings were instituted in the night. The witnesses were sought for by the judges. Uh, the sentence was passed within 24 hours. Uh, in fact, not within 24 hours, but the sentence was passed <laughs> 24 hours too soon. And on either the feast day, Passover, or the eve of Passover, the accused was interrogated by the judge. Indeed, if you have, those of you who've done your homework and read the passage very carefully, you will see that the whole case in the end uh, uh, revolved around the interrogation uh, by the high priest of the Lord Jesus, all of which was strictly illegal according to Jewish law. <coughs> Whatever we might feel, we have to say that even if there was the strictest legality in the proceedings, if outwardly the trial of Christ was my, uh, the letter of the law was in the trial of Christ was minutely observed, uh, it was in fact a travesty of justice. In many ways, the trial of Christ is a perfect illustration of our Lord's words in uh, Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, where he said, you blind guides, you swallow a camel and strain out a gnat. It's a perfect illustration of this um, uh, trial. They were very, very careful about the appearance of legality, trying to give some kind of uh, appearance of justice, of, of, of righteousness. <laughs> but in actual fact, they were swallowing a camel and straining out uh, the net. They were um, tithing anise and cumin and mint. But the weightier matters of the law, justice and love and mercy, these were being overlooked. The murderous intent of the Jewish establishment is made abundantly clear from the record. Uh, chapter 14, verse 1. Now after two days was the feast of the Passover and the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him with subtlety and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest haply there shall be a tumult of the people. Verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council sought witness against Jesus to put him to death. <coughs> Their murderous intent was only too clear from the 
record. This was no trial to sort out the truth concerning Christ. This was only a trial to dress up <coughs> that determination to kill Christ with all the trappings of legality and justice. The outcome of the proceedings was firmly settled in their mind before the trial began. It was the execution of Christ as a criminal. Now that he was finally in their grip, they could not let that opportunity slip by without once and for all settling the matter. That meant they'd got to find a capital charge. Now it's interesting in the New English Bible how it's put. It says that the chief priests and scribes and elders sought to find some evidence against Jesus to warrant a death sentence. They sought to find some evidence against Jesus to warrant a death sentence. The problem they had was to find a charge that could be well substantiated by witnesses and which would necessitate the death penalty. That was not so easy. It would appear that a number of charges presented themselves uh, to, uh, to them as eminently suitable, but the Sanhedrin could not find the required evidence to substantiate them. You see, it says in uh, verse 55, and found it not, or again, the New English Bible puts it, and failed to find any. They sought to find evidence that would warrant, against Jesus, that would warrant a death sentence, but failed to find any. So evidently there was a lot of coming and going and in the background. This may well explain, of course, the preliminary examination before Annas. It seems that the reason for this was probably uh, that the sudden and unexpected arrest of Christ did not give them enough time to carefully prepare the prosecution case and to uh, arrange the prosecution witnesses upon whom so much depended in Jewish law. Added to that, we must remember that this was the Passover, and these were chief priests and scribes and elders, every one of them. They had very, it was a very heavy time of the year for them as priests, very heavy time of the year even for the scribes. They not only had many religious demands to meet, but they had many domestic demands to meet in the biggest festival of the Jewish year. Um, evidently, the first charge which they preferred against Christ was that of being a false prophet. This was a capital charge, and the penalty was death by stoning. However, although many witnesses were called to testify against Christ, no two of them agreed. We read that in verse 56. Um, for many bore false witness against him, and their witness did not agree. The nearest they came to providing the evidence upon which he could be sentenced was when two witnesses testified to the fact that they had heard him say, destroy this man-made temple, and in three days 
I will build another not of human making or of human construction. However, even these two witnesses did not corroborate one another and the whole case fell through. It says in uh, verse uh, uh, 57 to 59, uh, even, verse 59, not even so did their testimony agree. Now there are just one or two things here about this matter we might uh, underline. It's interesting that this uh, is called false witness. <clears throat> false witness. When in fact it is substantially true. Uh, for the correct wording, see John chapter 2, verse 19. John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Their garbled version clearly reveals their totally false understanding and interpretation of what Christ said. What was false was the spirit behind their testimony and the, their twisted understanding and interpretation. They were making out that Christ had said, this man made temple, I will destroy. And in three days I'll build another. Not of human making, not of human construction. That is literally what it is. It's a very, you can't really put it in English because literally it would read like this. This man-made temple, I, I will destroy this man-made temple. And in three days, I will build another unhuman made or unman-made. Can't very well say that. So we have the problem of what to put it, so we have it in the rather beautiful English. But it doesn't have quite the sort of um, twist which only the intonation of a voice can give to this. It'll be very interesting to hear those witnesses as they, as they sort of, uh, the intonation they gave uh, to what the Lord had said. Dist I will destroy this man-made temple. And in three days, I will build another, not of human construction. Uh, we have to understand that the temple re represented for the Sanhedrin the whole system they held such tight control over. Their livelihood was represented by the temple. Their security. Um, it was their little empire. And anything, therefore, that touched the temple touched them on a very weak spot. Uh, particularly, I think, the man-made uh, 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 point. This man-made temple. I will destroy this man-made temple. Uh, uh, of course, it was built by Herod, and, uh, and before that, by Zerubbabel, and before that, by Solomon. But the fact is that they believe that it was constructed by God. And uh, I don't think the Lord Jesus would have argued about that either. But it was the, the way it was put. Destroy, I will destroy this man-made temple. Christ had, of course, 
spoken of the temple of his body and of his death and resurrection. If you turn again to John chapter 2 and that verse 19 and compare it uh, with it, verses 21 and 22, we read, but he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he spake this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said uh, to them. They were seeking to destroy him, to eradicate him and his influence altogether. But there would be a resurrection. They were seeking to deny truth, to destroy truth, to eradicate truth. But there would be a resurrection of truth in such a way that it would be absolutely invincible. The Sanhedrin would fail. It is very interesting that this matter should come up just in the Lord's trial. They were going to destroy his but thank God, he was going to raise it again after three days. They thought they had won, but it was Christ who won. Truth always wins. Never forget that. Truth always wins. Yet there's more to his words than even that. Without any shadow of doubt, he was not only referring to his own physical body, but to that new man, that body of his, the church, the temple of the living God, which by his death and by his resurrection he would produce. What wonderful words I think of all over the Bible. I think of Ephesians 2 from verses 14 right through to verses 22. I, I, we can't read it all, we'll be here all night, but I'll just read a few uh, verse, the last ones of that. Verse 14, For he is our peace who made both one and break down the middle wall of partition. And verse 15, That he might create in himself of the two one new man, so making peace. Verse 20, Being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the chief cornerstone, in whom each several building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also were builded together for a habitation of God in the Spirit. Wonderful words. That's what he was speaking of. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise from the dead, and I will produce a temple that this other temple was only a shadow of, only a figure of, only the palest, palest type. I will produce the temple of the living God. I think of so many scriptures about this matter of his body. I think of Romans 12. Um, many members, one body, 1 Corinthians 12. I think of, uh, of the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter 2. Ye also as living stones are built together to be a, 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 a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. I think of Je the words of the Lord Jesus himself, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. How interesting. That right here in the, in the trial, the whole matter of the temple of God, 
was raised. They, as Caiaphas on another occasion reported by John, had no idea how prophetic it was. Strange sometimes how God uses evil men. Perhaps not so strange since he uses the devil to do many great works. Or should we say in the sense that he uses the devil, he draws out from his people, people does things that would never be done any other way. I think it's most instructive that here in the trial of Christ this matter was raised. For it brings us right back to the matter of service. Christ's supreme service was not only to save us, but to produce that spiritual house for God, to build the eternal dwelling place of God by the Spirit. That temple not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That which after all the old temple was a man-made type, though God-given. That other temple was only a figure, only a shadow of God's eternal dwelling place, Christ and the church. And in fact, God had referred to the Sanhedrin themselves as builders in Mark chapter 12. Just literally, in fact, in the same week, a few uh, days before this occasion, Mark chapter 12, verse 10, Jesus answering them said, Have ye not read even the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, the same was made the head of the corner. This was from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes and they sought to lay hold on him and they feared the multitude for they perceived that he spake the parable against them and they left him and went away God the spirit of God had spoken of the Sanhedrin themselves as builders they also were builders we're back to the matter of service these men were supposed servants of the Lord builders in the building of God. They had in fact rejected Christ, the great corner stone, from whom the whole building was to take its shape and character. In so doing, they excluded themselves from God's building. They were sentencing him, and in doing so, they were sentencing themselves. We're back to the same point we made last week. Furthermore, it's also, I think, in interesting to note that although they succeeded in executing Christ, destroying that temple of his body, the temple which meant so much to them was completely and utterly destroyed in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt since. But the temple which Christ raised, not of human making or of human construction, that temple is as eternal, as indestructible, as invincible as God himself. 
One other point before we go on to the other verses. As a small little point, really. Some might wonder, what was the non-agreement of these witnesses? I don't know, we don't know, but it was probably on the matter of time and place. When was the Lord supposed to have said this? But all we know is that they failed to agree, their testimony failed to corroborate uh, uh, the other, each the other, and therefore uh, it failed. It must have been clear at this point that the Sanhedrin was losing the case. Even uh, the uh, thin veneer of legality was beginning to crack. It says, for instance, uh, the witness, verse 56, verse 59, the witnesses agreed not in both cases. And as we've said, according to Jewish law, it was essential that the evidence was established in the mouth of at least two witnesses. So it was that the high priest himself took the floor. It seems he felt all was lost unless he stepped in. He began an interrogation of the accused forbidden in Jewish law. Verse 60. Are you not going to say anything? He demanded. There must be something behind all this. What is it? The fact of the matter was simple. Not only did the witnesses not agree, in their evidence with one another, but Christ had maintained an uncomfortable silence. From the very beginning of the trial, he had uttered not one single word. Verse 61. But he was silent and made no answer. This silence was not only a fulfillment of prophecy. We know from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7 uh, that uh, it had been prophesied that he would open not his mouth. But it wasn't just merely a kind of technical fulfillment of ancient prophecy. His silence eloquently expressed the simple fact that truth cannot by argument, by contradiction, or even by discussion clear up and settle a lie. This is a thing Christians find very, very hard to accept. But the fact of the matter is this, you can argue till you're blue in the face with lies, You'll never settle. You can bring up every fact, you can explain every single aspect, but you'll not clear up lies. Lying takes no account of facts. You can, you can as it were, array before its gaze every bit of evidence genuine evidence. You can open up the facts, but lying is absolutely blind in both eyes. It is not persuaded or even influenced by the facts. Lying is a spirit 
a warped and twisted mind, a warped and twisted attitude, really, of mind, mentality. And we see this so clearly in the Sanhedrin, and above all, in this trial, all the way through. They had never accepted the facts. They would never even give the facts a hearing. We see it even more clearly in the trial of Christ. Moreover, I think there's another fact we ought to uh, state in this connection. In the final issue, a lie can never harm truth. Now, I will say that again. In the final issue, a lie can never harm truth. There are times, therefore, when silence is the best defense of truth. How hardly some of us learn this. Christ had fearlessly proclaimed the truth. Whatever the price had been in unpopularity, he had boldly stated the truth again and again, and there is a place for speaking the truth. There's a place for boldly, fearlessly proclaiming the truth. Now, however, in the hands of liars, he utters not a word. He leaves it to God himself to vindicate the truth. It was just this that gripped the Apostle Peter. Years later in his letter, he wrote these words in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19. For this is acceptable, if a conscience toward God, a man endureth grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye sin and are buffeted for it, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye shall take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his body upon the tree, that we, having died unto sins, might live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. So evidently Peter, Peter who, who would take a sword and strike off the ear of, uh, of one of the high priest's slaves, Peter was always in the forefront saying, Never, Lord, never! You're not going to die. I'll die with you rather than deny you. Peter, in the end, learnt the lesson of the trial of Christ. He learnt the simple fact that sometimes the greatest defense of truth is silence. Positive silence, not passive silence. The kind of silence which deliberately has committed oneself, one's name, one's reputation, one's work to God to vindicate the truth. Uh, I think, though, that on the deepest level of all, his silence was not just a cold leaving of everything to God to vindicate. It was the silence of love. In the amazingly precise words 
used in Isaiah's prophecy, in Isaiah 53, especially from verses 7 to 9, concerning the trial of Christ. It is just this fact that is emphasized. Now, I will read those, uh, those well-known words to you, and I hope they dawn upon you in a new way. Listen to it. Yet, uh, uh, verse 7, he was oppressed, yet when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. As a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and as a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who among them considered that it was he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He was enduring because he was going to be cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke he was making his soul an offering for sin. It was the silence of love. It wasn't just that he was committing it all to God and God in the end would vindicate. It was that he couldn't explain the fact of what he was going to do. Just imagine, could he explain to those men with all that venomous hatred, could he explain to them what he was going to do, why he was there, what his supreme service and what was. Even his own disciples hadn't understood. Not a thing had even dawned upon his side. Perhaps one simple disciple, a woman, she perhaps was the only one who dimly saw something. She bought an alabaster cruise of spikenard used for the burial of the dead, and she broke it anointed his head and his feet, as if in some dim way she was the only one who understood that he was going forward to something which, he, some work which entailed his death. But none of the others understood. If they didn't, certainly the Sanhedrin didn't. How could he explain to them what he was going to do? He couldn't explain. If he had explained, they wouldn't have understood. They would have turned away. And so, he was silent. It was the silence of love. He didn't argue. He didn't contradict. He didn't defend himself. He didn't explain his position, his work. He remained silence. I say that this silence was, at this point, and in those circumstances, the greatest expression of love. Furthermore, the Sanhedrin before whom he stood were the highest representatives of God's people to whom the stroke was due. Now, Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53, those verses 7 to 9, is an, is an incredibly clear and detailed foretelling of all that Christ suffered in that trial. I can only touch on it because it's only, it's not really so much the mark 
study. But if I may be just to leave with you a little of that, because it is in many ways, some of you might like to study it in connection with the trial of Christ, it is the, the most amazing uh, uh, prediction, not just of the outward circumstances, but of the inward spirit of the trial. For instance, verse 8, judgment, the normal Hebrew word for judgment. Uh, by oppression and judgment, he was taken uh, away. Taken away by oppression and judgment. That's exactly what we're dealing with tonight. The judgment of Christ. Being cut off out of the land of the living. Verse 8. Just simply the death sentence. Sentence of death. Verse 7, he was oppressed, yet when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. Now this word oppressed is a very interesting word in Hebrew because it means the distress that comes through a taskmaster or an exactor. It's the same word for exaction, to exact something out of somebody. Exactor, taskmaster. And this is a perfect and incredibly Precise description of the trial. Distressed by taskmasters, by exactors. The word affliction is even more interesting, for it's, in Hebrew, its root is just simply to be abased, to be lowered, to be humiliated. He was oppressed, and when he was abased, when he was humiliated, when he was lowered, he opened not his mouth. The trial is one long humiliation for Christ these hours. Then again, in verse 8, we have another, in your revised version, oppression, but in your old authorized version, prison. Um, from prison and judgment he was taken away. And this is not the same word as oppress in verse 7. And it simply means from restraint. And has perhaps the meaning of the prison. That's why the authorised version uh, just put it like that. Uh, from being restrained, from arrest and judgment. That's really what it is, arrest and judgment. Being, as it were, bound, being restrained physically, uh, being seized, apprehended. Uh, but there are other things too. What about the picture of a sheep in the hands of its shearers? I don't know how many of you are country folk, but if you've ever seen a sheep in the hands of its shearers, you know you have a perfect description of Christ's trial. You know how firmly sheep is held over. I've never seen a sheep run away from a shearer yet. Well and truly held. A perfect description of those who were uh, exacting something out of Christ, from Christ. Or again, as a lamb led to the slaughter, a picture of a little lamb going along to the abattoir, along to the slaughterhouse, just gently, without innocently, or without any deceitfulness, just gently going straight into the slaughterhouse. This is a, an amazingly precise description of the trial of 
Christ. We shall see a little more of it in a, in a moment. When it was clear to Caiaphas that he also was getting nowhere, he changed his tactics. Putting Christ on the most solemn oath possible, he asked him directly and plainly whether he was the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, the Son of God. Verse 61. Now, actually, Mark does not tell us that he was put on solemn oath. It's Matthew who tells us that he was put on the most solemn oath. It is the most solemn oath uh, uh, according to Jewish law. I adjure you. Um, Christ was put on the most solemn oath to speak the truth. And uh, he was asked, are you the Messiah, the son of the living uh, God? Now, here is just a point that needs clearing up. Claiming to be the Messiah was not a capital charge. It wasn't even a non-capital charge. Anyone could claim to be the Messiah. So the Lord Jesus never died because he claimed to be the Messiah. There have been many, many false messiahs. None of them had actually been executed for saying that they were the Messiah. According to Jewish law, no one could be apprehended for saying he was the Messiah just in case he happened to be the Messiah. As simple as that. The subtlety of the high priest's interrogation, his question, on Solomon, was the fact that he said, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Now Luke tells us quite plainly that he said, son of God. In other words, not just the question of messiahship, but do you claim to be God? Equal with God. The Father, the Son of God, equal with him. Uh, what the high priest was doing was simply changing the charge from the one that had failed, charge of being a false prophet, to the one of being a, a blasphemy. Now, blasphemy was, in fact, the most serious charge that could be made against anybody. Uh, it, uh, its penalty was cutting off, which meant virtually excommunication, an official desecration of the person, as no longer even being a Jew, no longer being a covenant member of the people of God. It was a terrible, as it were, defrocking of somebody. They were excommunicated, out, heathen. And secondly, it was a stoning by death. They knew exactly what they were doing uh, in making this charge um, of uh, blasphemy. It was surely a startled Sanhedrin that heard Christ break his silence with those words of majestic and sub sublime simplicity, I am. It was those words which sealed his fate and he had spoken them himself and he did not need to. Jesus knew as well as anybody that according to Jewish law he didn't have to answer. The high priest shouldn't have even been interrogating him. But it was the Lord Jesus who simply said, I am, I say, Words of majestic and sublime simplicity. 
Because in those two words, I am, there is the whole purpose of God. The incarnation, the giving of God, of his only begotten Son, the coming of Christ into this world, the whole life and ministry of Jesus Christ, all that he'd expressed of the heart and nature of God, as well as the saving purpose of God that was to be accomplished on the cross. Those words sealed Christ's fate and gave the case to the prosecution. Furthermore, Christ made the meaning of his words absolutely plain, just in case they didn't understand, by quoting literally two scriptures. One, Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of thy feet, claiming to be God. And the second was Daniel 7, and... Uh, um, verses 13 and 14 about the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. They could not mistake the meaning. Now what is the Lord Jesus doing? It is interesting to note that we have here the last occasion in Mark when Christ used the title Son of Man. Those of you who have been with us in these studies from the beginning know that this is one of the great titles used in the Mark. In Mark's Gospel, 14 times it's used by Christ with meaning right the way through. This was the last occasion he used it. The long journey of the Son of Man, the servant of the Lord, from his baptism and anointing to the offering of his supreme service was over. Uh, the breaking of his silence with these words virtually signed his death sentence. Furthermore, it was just what the Sanhedrin wanted to hear. We may well ask why, if he'd kept silent throughout the trial, he should now speak. And furthermore, speak not just words of defense, but words which gave his accusers precisely what they were seeking for. But just as he was silent, because he could neither defend the truth, nor could he explain to them his supreme work, now he speaks words of truth, and by speaking, draws out the iniquity and evil in them, and enables them to sentence him to death. The result of his words was immediate, symbolically rending his clothes as a sign of grief, at hearing such terrible blasphemy, the high priest spoke. Do we need to go any further or call any more witnesses? You've heard yourselves the blasphemy. What is your verdict? The vote was taken. Everyone present voted guilty of death. The servant of the Lord was sentenced to death not for being a false prophet, not claiming to be the Messiah, but because he said that he was the Son of God. Once they saw that their case against Christ was successful, all restraint, all appearance of legality, of justice, of righteousness was thrown overboard. It was as if all hell was let loose. Such was their hatred, their malice, that many began to spit upon him. The eastern way of showing 
utter abhorrence. Venerable theologians, learned doctors of the law, dignified ecclesiastics, elder statesmen, professional and aristocratic men, driven by the spirit of Antichrist, energized by evil, blinded by their self-centeredness, their violent and jealous prejudices, behaved like ignorant louts, like gangsters. Blindfolding Christ, they began to hit him. Prove that you're a prophet, they said. Prophesy as to who it is, the name of the one who hits you. They snarled at him. The example of the most venerable and respected leaders of the nation behaving like this naturally encouraged the officers of the temple guard and others to behave in a similar manner. Just look at that verse 65. To cover his face is, lit, is a, literal, um, a literal translation. But really, it's much better, as in the New American Standard Bible, to blindfold him. It just means to blindfold him. They have... It's a literalism, really, to cover his face. Again, to buffet him. Uh, it's literally to punch him with the fist. So they began to punch him with their fists in the face and say to him, blindfolded, Come on, who is it, if you're a prophet? Tell us the name of who it is that's hitting you. Um, uh, the guards received him with blows. It just literally did strike him with the palms of their hands. That's the authorised version, and it's probably the most literal translation we have. Received him with blows of their hands, is the revised version, with slaps or cuffs. The New American Standard Bible, again, is very good. They received him with slaps to his face. We've said much in our studies, in Mark, about the difference between Christ and fallen man, of the difference between his service and the service of the natural man or the service of this world. In no other place do we see this matter in sharper focus than here in the trial of Christ. If any institution, any body of men amongst the people of God, were meant to represent the service of God, it was the Sanhedrin. They were meant to express the highest form of service in existence, to be examples to the whole nation. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, represented God to the nation and to the whole world. They were the highest court of appeal in jury, the tribunal where all matters of faith and practice was settled. They were the official custodians of the word of God, the oracles of God, the promises of God. They were the guardians of the law of God, the representatives of a divine covenant made with them. If anyone was meant to represent the character and the heart and the ways of God, the mind of God, it was the Sanhedrin. They represented divine service, the very service and ministry of God. It is therefore, I think, the most 
horrifying travesty of justice that we see in this so-called trial. Men who were meant to express righteousness and truth and purity and love and compassion and mercy, bent on murder and using every device, every underhand method to achieve such an objective. Men who were meant to represent the love of God, spitting at the, on the face of Christ. Men who were celebrating at this very time the deliverance by the hand of God from the powers of darkness in Egypt, themselves the instruments and tools of satanic forces. Men who had cleaned out all leaven from their homes with absolute precision. That leaven which spoke of sin, of corruption. They'd driven it all out, according to Jewish law, with a candle. From the cellar to the loft. So that the house was clean from sin and corruption so that they could sit down to eat the Passover undefiled and sanctified. These men, themselves filled with sin and corruption. Corrupt thoughts, corrupt actions, corrupt methods. So far as these servants of the Lord, so far as these servants of the Lord, remove from the spirit of God that they destroy, they murder the servant of the Lord, the one upon whom their whole history was focused, of whom all their prophets spoke. In those few hours, they not only sentenced to death the San, uh, they not only sentenced to death uh, uh, the Sanhedrin, but by their own hand, their own vote, their own decision, they destroyed the very meaning of their existence. Far from representing God, they reveal only too clearly the ultimate development of fallen man, even when deeply religious. The Sanhedrin, in what it did, is the evidence of the blindness of self-centeredness and self-interest, even when found in the midst of the things of God. Not for one moment had the Sanhedrin stopped to consider whether Jesus was the Messiah, whether his claim to be the Son of God could be true. Blinded by self-interest and prejudice, fearful for their own position, determined to defend the traditional and formal system they represented, they sentenced him to death. In doing so, they sentenced not only the servant of the Lord to death, not only the Messiah, they sentenced God to death.
so far can the fallen nature of man go. Such is his nature. Such is the nature of pride. Such is the nature, the devilish nature, of self-centeredness that he could do no other. Shall we pray? Lord, how we thank Thee that there is an escape from this kind of nature, that there's a way out, Lord, from this kind of man. How we thank Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of us all. We praise Thee this evening that He and He alone is the one who can open the door of hope and can take us through into a new man and a new a uh, power, a new life, a new creation, a new nature. Lord, we praise Thee. And we ask Thee together that somehow, Lord, something of this evening, something of the truth of it, may dawn upon us all. Oh, God, may we be delivered from bypassing things which are essential. We pray that somehow, Lord, what thou didst suffer may dawn upon us at least in a new way. And we may thus, Lord, even if we don't fully comprehend and we never shall what it cost thee, at least, Lord, something of that fear, that reverence, that sensitive love for thyself may come into our lives. O oh, Lord, we commit ourselves to thee. We want to pray together that we may be delivered from that kind of man and that kind of nature. And even if we are like Peter who fell, we may be those, Lord, who finally come through to thine own praise and glory and honor. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.